Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome. I'm Steve Augustino, a partner in the Communications Practice Group of Kelly Dry and Warren. Those of you who have followed our blogs, podcasts, and webinars know that I have spoken many times about FCC enforcement practices and procedures. This month, we're going to try something a little different. With this episode of the podcast, we are initiating what I hope will be a regular feature examining developments and trends in FCC enforcement. On a monthly basis, we intend to select two or three interesting FCC enforcement actions to highlight and discuss in a little more depth. As background, please allow me to set the stage a little. FCC enforcement has been a significant and controversial area under Chairman Wheeler. We have seen a trend toward higher profile enforcement actions, often now with proposed fines in the tens of millions of dollars. These actions have been based on principle-based interpretations of the Communications Act, primarily Section 201's prohibition on unjust and unreasonable practices by telecommunications carriers. We have seen consent decrees that require stricter settlement terms and now include tailored and more detailed compliance plan provisions that act in a way similar to an injunction would in traditional litigation. These actions have attracted critics both inside and outside the FCC. They also have increased the chances that we will see a significant trial de novo in a collection action to collect an FCC forfeiture. So the stakes certainly have been raised. This episode of the podcast will examine three actions in June and early July, two consent decrees, and an order. I'll begin with the order. LDC Telecommunications. On July 1, 2016, the FCC Enforcement Bureau released an item entitled Order to Pay or to Show Cause. I immediately was struck by the unusual title of the order. This is the first time I've seen an order to pay in an FCC release. Something unusual, I thought, must be afoot. So with that, let's examine the order a little more closely. The Enforcement Bureau's order is directed to LDC Telecommunications, an inter-exchange carrier based in Florida. The order directs LDC to pay delinquent regulatory fees owed to the FCC. According to the order, LDC has failed to pay invoiced regulatory fees for fiscal year 2012 and fiscal year 2014. The order directs the LDC to pay the invoice amounts or show cause why the payment demand is inapplicable or should otherwise be waived or deferred. Fair to pay or to show cause, the order states, may result in revocation of LDC's International 214 authorization and LDC's Domestic 214 authorization. The amount that the LDC owes the FCC? It must be a lot, right, if the FCC is going to the trouble to issue this order? Well, oddly, it's not. According to the order, the total amount owed is less than $4,000, and that's with the harsh 25% late payment penalty that applies to delinquent FCC regulatory fees. It's not clear whether this amount also includes the 28% collection fee added on when delinquent debts are transferred to the U.S. Treasury for collection. If it does, that would make LDC's initial obligation extremely small, just barely above the de minimis threshold for such payments. So the importance of the order to pay portion of the action is questionable at best. It's also unlikely that LDC will pay or show cause. 
According to the USF Filer Database, LDC has not filed a Form 499A since April 2013. There is no record of LDC's annual CPNI certification since March of 2010. The USF database closed LDC's account in June 2013 with a notation that this account was inactive for an extended period and closed because the administrator could not contact the filer. Moreover, LDC has a pending Notice of Apparent Liability issued in August 2012 proposing a $1.1 million penalty for slamming. That NEL, as an aside, has not yet been converted to a forfeiture order and is dangerously close to the point at which the FCC would be barred by the statute of limitations from collecting a forfeiture. So I don't expect that LDC will respond to this order. In my view, the key to understanding this release is the statement that failure to respond may be grounds for revocation of LDC's 214 authorizations. Revocation is an extreme remedy, which has only been invoked twice, once in the 1990s for a carrier that was alleged to have engaged in slamming and that had disappeared, and once recently for two carriers that failed to respond to a team telecom inquiry under their national security assurance plans. But the commission has threatened revocation of a 214 on a few occasions more recently. This action seems to be intended to establish a new precedent for revocation, that either failure to respond or possibly failure to pay required fees is a legitimate basis for revocation of a license. I expect that we will see a follow-up order in a few months asserting this basis for revocation. Our second case in this episode is a consent decree involving Puerto Rico Telephone and America Mobile. On June 28, 2016, the Enforcement Bureau released a consent decree with Puerto Rico Telephone Company and its parent entity, America Mobile of Mexico. America Mobile is owned by Mexican billionaire Carlos Slim, who has other telecommunications holdings in the U.S. as well. In the consent decree, Puerto Rico Telephone and America Mobile settle an investigation that the Slim family repeatedly exceeded the foreign ownership levels authorized for the company by the FCC. Puerto Rico Telephone and America Mobile agree to settle the case by paying a $1.1 million civil penalty and agreeing to a compliance plan. Much of the Puerto Rico Telephone case is typical of the current FCC Enforcement Bureau practices. The company admitted a violation of the foreign ownership rules, a fact that appeared to be uncontested in this case, paid a civil penalty, and agreed to a three-year compliance plan. There are two aspects of the consent decree that are worth noting. First, this consent decree is signed not only by Puerto Rico Telephone Company, the regulated carrier subject to the FCC's jurisdiction, but also by America Mobile. This is the first settlement I can recall in which a non-regulated entity was a signatory. It opens the possibility that the FCC could later move to enforce the consent decree directly against America Mobile rather than solely through the entity holding the 214. Second, the compliance plan provisions here are unusually detailed. The Slim family is required to make regular reports of its ownership interests in America Mobile, and America Mobile, in turn, is required to report on a monthly basis those ownership levels to the FCC. Such frequency of reports is unusual, and the reason for it is not fully explained in the consent decree. More broadly, the lesson for other entities is that compliance plan obligations are becoming less boilerplate and much more tailored to each individual settlement. Our final order for this episode is another consent decree. This consent decree was signed by General Communications, Inc., a local exchange carrier in Alaska, 
in order to settle an investigation related to outages in 911 services. 911 outages have been a major policy focus of the FCC since at least the derecho outages in June of 2012. Last year, three carriers agreed to pay over $21 million to settle investigations relating to an outage that affected several states in the western United States. In this latest consent decree, GCI agrees to pay $2.4 million to settle an investigation related to five outages that it experienced in Alaska. What is notable, however, is the following. The outages were old, dating back to 2008, and they were self-disclosed by GCI. The Enforcement Bureau continues its pattern of seemingly not giving sufficient credit for self-disclosure of violations. As more of these self-disclosure fines are issued, I wonder whether it will have an impact on the incentive for carriers to come forward with disclosure of violations. Second, the outages appear to have been small. In a way, however, the remoteness of the locations and therefore the small number of residents affected appears to have worked against GCI in this particular instance. The FCC noted in its consent decree that it, quote, took into consideration that four out of the five outages were in remote locations. And then finally, unlike the prior settlements, GCI admits to a violation of Section 64.3001 of the FCC's rules. Section 64.3001 directs where and when a carrier must route 911 calls to a PSAP or other termination point based on the local jurisdiction's notification to the carrier. Whether this section of the FCC rules is applicable to an outage has been hotly contested by the industry in the past. In fact, the three consent decrees in 2015 did not rely upon Section 64.3001 as a basis for the action. With this order, however, the agency signals that it has not retreated from its position that 64.3001 does apply. Although the GCI admission is not binding, it does increase the likelihood that the FCC will pursue a similar case in the future using Section 64.3001 as its theory. That's it for this episode. Please check back with us next month for another discussion of recent releases by the FCC Enforcement Bureau. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.